Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. On today's episode, we have the privilege of having Chris Larson, the co-founder and executive chairman of Ripple, back on the podcast as our first ever return guest for the second time here. I'm so excited about this conversation today and to share it with you. Chris Larson is a very well-known innovator who's now co-founded three companies trying to drive innovation in the financial system, Elon, Prosper, and now Ripple. In the conversation today, Chris and I dive into a number of topics. First, we begin with a very important conversation about some huge news that hit the crypto markets last year, at the end of last year. The SEC had a case against Ripple. Chris and Brad Garlinghouse, the CEO, maintaining that XRP was a security. So a lot of conversation there about innovation and regulation in our financial markets. Next, we talk about leadership and finance. Chris is a famous innovator in the financial system. And so we talk a lot about the role that leadership plays in innovation in building new things, in advancing our financial system to new heights, into new innovations. Then we talk about a couple of Chris's deepest passions. Now we talk a little bit about San Francisco. He is a San Francisco lifetime resident and talks about the state of San Francisco, a lot of investments being made in San Francisco and the current realities in San Francisco that we're facing and why he's very, very optimistic about San Francisco and the future of the city. So excited for you to hear the conversation today would welcome your feedback and comments and questions as follow-ups here. If you're listening, feel free to shoot us a note, hello at scholarsoffinance.org or on any of our social platforms, feel free to shoot us a DM if you have questions or on our next episode, want us to dig in further with Chris on other areas. With that, without further delay, here is Chris Larson. Chris Larson, sir, it is such a privilege to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast for the second time. You are our first repeat guest. Before we dive in, where does this call find you and how are you doing as we kick off the new year? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you and a real honor to be on for the second time. So I appreciate that. I'm in San Francisco today at the home office. You may have heard we just opened our new headquarters in San Francisco last month, and we're super excited about that. San Francisco is looking really good these days. Congratulations on the big news about the new headquarters. Really excited to see the new HQ and see the space. Chris, we have so much ground to cover as always and so little time. I feel like a theme every time we talk. We've had you on the podcast before, but for any of our listeners who haven't heard that conversation or don't know who you are or your background, can you just share your story? Sure, happy to. So I'm the executive chairman of Ripple. Ripple's an enterprise blockchain company. We work on cross-border payments, tokenization, custody, since we just bought a custody company. Been around for about 12 years now. I was one of the co-founders. Other than that, though, I actually spent a lot of my time on philanthropic work, mostly climate, and then quite a bit of work on trying to fix San Francisco. And so that's around public safety, criminal justice reform, focusing on areas like the Tenderloin, which really needs a lot of help. But an area actually I'm quite optimistic about as well. So that's a lot of fun. And then a variety of other things like AI safety and things like that. Thanks for the succinct overview. 
you've had an illustrious career over several decades, a lot to unpack. For our listeners, I think it's worth noting that you're now a three-time founder, co-founder of fintech companies, Elon, Prosper, Ripple. You've been an innovator for your entire career, really seeing opportunity and seizing opportunity. I'm excited to dive in on the finance side, talk about the recent news from the SEC in the Ripple case. I'm excited to talk about climate, to talk about San Francisco. Excited to unpack your philanthropic work, which scholars of finance is included in too, which we're very grateful for, of course. Yes, indeed. You have to do great work. Thank you. We're so grateful for your help with some of our climate initiatives, some of our climate work, impact investing, sustainable investing work we're doing with our students. So much to unpack, Chris. Let's dive in. I want to start with some of the biggest news of 2023 in crypto. The SEC dropped their claims against you and Brad Garlinghouse in their ongoing case against Ripple. How are you feeling about the big win? It was a great year for us. And look, this is year three to get to that outcome. And I'd say it wasn't always pleasant over those three years. So yeah, obviously it feels great for the company. The company was able to grow tremendously during that three-year period. So I want to give a shout out to our CEO, Brad Garlinghouse. So to be under the kind of pressure campaign, that was a campaign by the SEC, really on a policy matter and all the pressure that that entails and to more than double the size of the company, expand globally to 15 offices, profitable company. That's just a phenomenal feat and all credit to Brad and his team on that. But I'll tell you on the SEC, this was an important win because two things can be true at the same time. So first of all, I want to acknowledge the SEC is a vitally important institution. If it wasn't there doing its job, the American public would just be eaten alive by scammers and fraudsters and all kinds of bad things. That is absolutely true. We need the SEC. But at the same time, it is also true that in particular, the approach to crypto policy in the US, the SEC has been a bully and it's operated basically outside of the law. They don't have a mandate to regulate crypto. Crypto needs new laws or it needs to be in laws that govern what it really is, a commodity. But the SEC in a power play decided they wanted to grab it. They didn't want to go to Congress, which is what they should have done. And what they were going to do is just bully market participants into bowing to their will so they could rack up the power to absorb this industry. And by the way, do it in a way that was incredibly harmful to that industry and to America's leadership in this industry, which I think is vital for U.S. interests. We absolutely dominate on the internet. Crypto, blockchain, it's a second form of internet of value. The first internet was an internet of information. Both of those things are going to be crucially important for American leadership around the world. And here we had an SEC, just because of a power play, deciding that they wanted to own this space, has done real damage to the space and basically pushed most of the innovators offshore to places like Singapore, London, Dubai, which by the way, people aren't going there because there's no regulation. They have very strict regulation that protects consumers, but importantly, that embraces innovators. And that's basically the winning formula. It's been the winning formula in America. So in any event, the win that we had was just, keep in mind that when the SEC came after us, there was no accusation of fraud or misrepresentation. This was a policy question. And then in addition to go after Brad, the CEO, and myself, the exec chair, it was nothing more than a bullying tactic that unfortunately works in most cases. Because here you have this really important point. 
if I went out and sued somebody under false pretenses, didn't have the right to sue somebody, I would lose and I would probably have to pay the other side's attorney's fees. The SEC doesn't have to do that. Why that makes any sense that average citizens are going to be held to one standard and you're this rogue agency under this rogue chairman, Gary Gensler, can basically sue anybody, can take as long as they want, they're not going anywhere, and basically force people to the mat and then have no consequences if they lose. That is grossly unfair. And that is something that needs to be reformed. We racked up anywhere from 150 to $200 million in legal fees fighting an unjust cause. We were going to take it all the way to the Supreme Court. Is the right move, but then there's no consequence to the SEC for doing that. Again, this is why most companies just fold, even if they did nothing wrong. And again, look, the SEC does a lot of great work in preventing fraud, scammers, bad people doing bad things. Absolutely. But in these cases in crypto, there's been a lot of this just plain bullying. I wish they'd gone after Sam Bankman free very aggressively before that blew up. So you missed that one. By the way, Gary Gensler had all kinds of private meetings with him and that needs to be investigated as well. So they don't go after him, but then who do they go after? They go after Coinbase, a company that they let go public. They saw all of glorious details of how they operate. That's an extremely regulation-friendly do the right thing company. And again, they went after them and us. Sorry if I went too long. Not at all. I mean, after spending 150 to $200 million fighting a legal case that just feels like bullying that lasted for three years, I would probably want to vent a little bit too. In your defense for your own apology, Chris, you've been one of my dearest mentors in my life. Like one of the most impactful mentors I have. We've spent hours and hours and hours together and we've gotten to know each other quite well. And I think what I've seen consistently from you, not only from your career of Elon, like trying to make loans more accessible with Prosper, trying to make peer-to-peer lending work, Ripple, doing consumer protection, consumer advocacy for decades. You have spent your entire career trying to make our financial system better serve people. In every conversation you and I have, you're always talking about like the important good that you're trying to advance. And so... One thing I wanted to ask and bring up here is people seeing headlines, oh, SEC case against Brad Garlinghouse and Chris Larson. A lot of people just skim news, they skim headlines, and they make snap judgments. They might not have the full story, and they might not have any clue about what's going on. For those listening who may have not followed the case or have any knowledge about the case over the last three years, can you just briefly take us through it from the top? What happened? What was the SEC's claim and how the case evolved? and, And ultimately, where does it stand now? Yeah, so crypto's been around now for 12 years. In the early days, and this goes back to 2012, 2013, we were in the industry then. If you called an industry back then, I mean, it was really a ragtag group of developers, dreamers that were working on these ideas. But the regulation was very unclear and it was kind of scary, actually. But back then, you would have thought, is the Fed, the US dollar, they feel threatened and they're going to just crush us? That was kind of the big concern. The SEC wasn't really a part of the conversation even back then. It was really about the Federal Reserve, who weirdly was actually, the people there were terrific when we met with them. And we met with everybody over these years. And then the regulatory clarity initially came from the Treasury Department through FinCEN. How do you define money? That happened in 2013. And that was when you first started getting some clarity into the industry. 
And it looked like that was going to be the main regulator, which makes sense, actually. Currencies are commodities. It has a very definitive way of being. And the industry would have fit well into that. And I think it did initially. And then around, what is it, 2017 or so, because of the ICO trend, this initial coin offerings, you started seeing some of that. So projects that before there was a technology were raising money to build the technology. Now that's a security, point blank. We even said so publicly. And that's when the SEC started getting involved. So fine, go after those guys. But it was pretty clear that the rest of the industry, what, you know, what is Bitcoin? What is Ether? What is XRP? Very clearly commodities. So that felt settled. For whatever reason, the SEC decided, I think internally, oh, well, some people at the SEC, what we hear is there's still to this day, a huge conflict within the organization. And in our case, by the way, in Discover, we came up with a lot of conflict within the agency. But then they really started kind of throwing their weight around. Initially contact you and they say, we want information. And we provided tens of thousands of documents in an effort to be very cooperative, to be very constructive. We've always had that. You, one thing I've learned in FinTech is this is capital, technology, and compliance. All three of those wrapped very tightly together. So you have to be super compliance aware. And like I said, we've met with every regulator. We've had great relations with the regulators. I would say every single other regulator has been great to deal with. Not easy, but great to deal with. Respectful, thoughtful, thinking about Americans' leadership. And that's just in the U.S., never mind all the other countries we operate in, which also, to the large extent, been really constructive conversations. For whatever reason, the SEC started taking a kind of harder line where even when you were in dialogue with them and providing everything openly, not with subpoenas, but going in, having conversations, here's how this works, multiple presentations over multiple years. And then out of the blue, it turned into a threatening case. Like you will agree to be a security under securities laws or else. And very clearly, it was all about power. SEC wanting to regulate a huge emerging industry. I think they just wanted to get in there before the CFTC. Commodities Futures Trading Commission became the, the clear regulator. The threats came that we will drop a suit or you will submit, and we just weren't going to do that because it was wrong. And that wasn't easy. And to your point, when people see a case like that drop, I think they must be guilty of something. Again, even in their case, let's be clear, this is never a case about misrepresentation or fraud. It was purely policy. But to your point, I think if anybody just sees a headline, you know, they'll seem the worst. So in the early days, yeah, that felt terrible. And I think from the company, you know, very threatening to the company, you know, what's that going to do to the culture? What's it going to do to all of our partners who are regulated banks? So yeah, it was not easy, but we stuck in there. We had, I think the best representation, which is expensive, but I think it paid off. And I think that's been very positive for the industry. Thanks for unpacking it in some detail. It's really helpful. I think I'm sure for our, a lot of our listeners to hear. And one follow-up question that I want to ask is more legal challenges like this within crypto are inevitable, I think. When you just look at Binance, when you look at what happened with Sam Bankman-Fried, it's clear that regulation has to continue to evolve and more and more cases will arise. How important do you think the ruling will be as far as setting a legal precedent goes? Well, I think it already has set legal precedent. That is the law of the land that XRP is not in and of itself a security. That's the heart of the matter, right? So we want on everything that's important. The case is not done yet. There's cleanup things to do, but 
everything that's important, all the major issues, the rest of it in my mind is really just the wrap up. But again, I think it's very important for regulators when they're out there in these complex markets is understanding who are the bad guys and who are the good guys. The bad guys hurt America. They hurt markets. It's bad all the way around. And that's where they need to focus on the same bankman frieds. That should have been clearly the early focus probably prevented a lot of damage if they'd focused on the real bad players early. Rather than this shotgun approach, this is what's wrong with the SEC's approach. People call it regulation by enforcement. That's an important phrase because most regulation should be by legislation and then enforcing that legislation. They didn't have the legislation. So what they just decided to do was just go sue everybody. And that is just bad on every front, not least of which is that means you have spread your resources too thinly to not go after the Sam Bankman frieds And that's exactly what happened, why they were distracted going after the good players that were always constructive, actually wanted, we always wanted more legislation to make it clear. We still do. But instead of going after that strategy, it really, I think, opened the floodgates for some bad players to come through. Thanks, Chris. Really helpful context. I want to double click a little bit. The Howey test became incredibly important in the decisioning on this case. Can you share a bit about what the Howey test is and why it's important in the cryptocurrency marketplace? Yeah, so Howey test, it's a case that goes back to the 40s. It was sort of a Supreme Court case in determining when is something a commodity and when is something a security. And just kind of the highest level, what is a security? Security is basically some kind of an asset that, very importantly, is backed by some other asset. So if you're in the marketplace trying to sell or get investors to buy an asset that is backed by some other asset, people need to know what that other asset is. So if it's a company issuing stock and you're selling the stock certificate, you can't just sell the stock certificate without disclosing in great detail that's well laid out what the underlying asset the company is and how it all works. Makes sense, right? A commodity, take a gold or lumber or pork bellies, is an asset that just stands on its own. It is its own thing. There is nothing behind it that backs it up. Logic would also tell you then that that's exactly what crypto is. Crypto is a digital asset. It is what it is. It stands alone. There's nothing behind it. It's different than an ICO, by the way. Maybe we can get into that if you want, because an ICO, you're selling a piece of paper that says... I will be making this thing later and you'll have an interest in this thing later, right? So obviously you can't just sell the ICO paper. You have to explain what that thing is, right? So how we would lay out a couple of tests it has to be money is put in, it has to involve money, but very importantly, it's money in a common enterprise, right? Which is that thing that backs up the thing that you're buying, right? So if it's a company issuing stock, the common enterprise is obviously the company. And another component is that profit is derived by the work of others. In the instance of a company, obviously the person buying it doesn't have much power to do anything about how the company does. You're relying on the efforts of others, the people that run the company. Totally makes sense. But again, crypto is not that at all, right? And think about what the SEC claimed that XRP which I worked on that project before there was a company, Ripple. So again, the asset XRP stands on its own. And again, 
drilling into that, you know, think about what a stock is. A stock, when you buy it, you have rights to ownership in a company. That's exactly what a certificate of stock is. And that company has obligations to that holder of that stock certificate. They have to do certain things, right? So very clearly, that is why the SEC is regulating stock and investment contracts that look like stock. In a commodity, you don't have that. If you buy a piece of gold, you do not have any rights to the gold mine it was dug out of, right? And that gold mine has no obligations to the holder of the gold. That's exactly how crypto works. You buy XRP, you have no interest or rights to ripple the company. Even though we hold some XRP, we have common interests in XRP doing well as an asset, but that's very different from a common enterprise. And that's kind of what the case all came down to. Got it, got it. And then to wrap up on the case, where does it stand today and what are the next steps moving forward from here? Yeah, and we've won all the important stuff. There is final wrap-up and in, in quote-unquote remedies, but in my mind, these are just wrap-up kind of elements. But the precedent has been set. I think it's probably one of the biggest decisions in the history of the industry. There'll be another one here with Coinbase. Coinbase also, hats off to those guys. Hats off to Brian Armstrong. He's also fighting. And for a public company to fight the SEC, it takes a lot of guts, but again, it's the right thing. And I think they're also going to have important success here. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you letting us know where it stands. Congrats again on the positive judgment in the case. It sounds like it's great news for the industry. Thank you for your leadership, of course. And speaking of leadership, I would love to switch to our next topic, which is leadership in finance. The first time you came on the podcast, we talked about regulation, accessibility, energy, transparency in crypto and finance. And today I'd love to talk about leadership in finance, my personal favorite, as you know. What do you think about the role of leadership in the emergence of cryptocurrency? Now, we've now had more than a decade with that technology under our belts. So at this point, what roles do leaders need to be playing right now for the industry to achieve its potential? Yeah, so thank you. And by the way, scholars of finance, you guys are building the future leaders. So that's why we are so enthusiastic about backing you guys because we need ethical leaders and you guys are doing great work there. So all starts with you guys. But leadership in crypto, it's like leadership, I think, in any organization. It's all the same characteristics of really setting the right culture, making sure you have the right team members. When you don't have the right team members, acting quickly, hire slowly, fire quickly. But I think the culture that is super, super important, an open culture, culture of obviously hard work, being honest about the problems within an organization, Stockdale paradox, facing the brutal facts, but having faith in the mission always, both those things can exist together. No false optimism, right? And then I think within, maybe in crypto, maybe a little bit more specifically, simply because it's been such a fast moving, safe to say overhyped. I mean, every technology gets overhyped. Maybe because crypto involved money specifically, you've seen even more of that. Although you're certainly seeing a ton of overhype, I think even in AI today, even though it's insanely important, the most important thing since fire you know, or electricity. So really important for the leadership to try to be grounded, not get swept up into the hype. Focus on building and not disrupting. That's a big thing we always talk about. Hate the word disruption. I think whenever organizations talk about being disruptors, I think you're doing a disservice. If you think about what disruption means, disruption is bad. I guess social media has disrupted our kids. How's that working out? So again, focus on building, solving problems. Don't build technologies 
kind of looking for a solution. They should be technologies that make the world better. And blockchain and crypto does make the world better. Absolutely. And that's true when you're in a hype cycle. And that's true when you're in the bottoms of catastrophic headlines about Sam Bakeman Freed. And so leadership has to be kind of steady through a storm of times are too good, tamp it down a little bit. Times are all negative in the headlines. Well, just keep building. I think that's where leadership, that's the job. It sounds like you're really making a case here for resilience, for perseverance, and for focus. Now, I think back to our, just the conversation we just had about the SEC case, which must have taken a lot of resilience. This is my first time successfully building and launching a startup at Scholars of Finance. I have learned firsthand just how much resilience it takes and all the stories about how hard being a founder CEO is. I get it now after a few years. I personally look to mentors like you and others for inspiration. For you, I'm curious who you have taken inspiration from over your career. What was always really helpful to me was like reading books about struggle. So whether that be The Endurance, it's kind of a famous business book now, even though it's a failed mission to Antarctica back in the 1900s, a long time ago, just what they went through. That's actually why that's a business book now. Now we read that back in school, but struggle is great. Books on war and what people had to go through. I think that puts things in perspective because when you're in the trenches of starting a business or any organization, yes, yeah, it's, it's overwhelmingly stressful, especially in those early days. And you have to find a way to handle that. Try to be as stoic as you can, understanding what you can control and what you can't. And as I say, being able to tell the difference between the two and almost kind of letting go when things are going wrong, doing everything you can, obviously, but not getting swept up in the stress is like really, really important. So any book that has a hero that has overcome obstacles, that's a good role model. I mean, if I was going to say anybody, I'd probably throw out my dad because I just know how hard he worked and just a good guy and just worked his butt off all the, you know, his entire career. Thank you, Mr. Larson senior for being a great role model for making Chris the man he is today and helping shape him. I appreciate the book recommendations, Chris, always looking for those. One more question on leadership. You and I have talked a lot about the importance of our core values and our core principles that we live by and we operate by. At Scholars of Finance, we're teaching six core values, integrity, courage, humility, compassion, others, and four principles for each of those values that are that value in action, very practically. Can you share with the audience here, what are some of the values and principles that you personally live and lead by? That one around building and not disrupting, love that one. Really about being open and say the truth is within the organization, right? Because that is a occupational hazard, I think, of maybe leaders intimidating their team members so that they aren't going to hear the truth. Organizations work better when you face the brutal reality. So that's really important. We love this sort of getting it done value, like take responsibility and we see something wrong, get it done and hang in there. And I think this is a problem you see a lot of times in government organizations where I'm clocking out and that's not my job. I'm not sure whose job it is, right? Within an organization, people that just take responsibility and get things done. Another one we have is enjoying the journey because we put so much of our lives into work and it's not even work really. This is your mission. This is what you get up in the morning for. You're going to be spending the critical parts of your life on your work and on your projects and your passion. 
So you better find times to enjoy it, right? And don't just let things go by. You don't want to just be looking back and going, wow, I remember. This is the thing about startups. Like they're very stressful and really hard. But then when you look back later, you cherish those moments because you overcame. Even if it didn't work out, you overcame so much. Even if you failed, you fail with grace. There's a lot to be proud of looking back. So take a moment to smell the flowers, enjoy it with your team members. That's really important for building the right culture, I think. I really appreciate you sharing that. It really hits home for me. I think as a leader, obviously a young leader early in my career, early in my leadership journey, one thing I've recognized is I will push so hard for excellence because I care so much about our mission. That actually can sometimes lead the team to feel almost performance anxiety. Like it creates a sort of perfection fear that if they're not working hard, they're not doing everything just right, they can start to feel anxious, start to feel stressed. It can feel difficult to surface challenges when someone just saying, you can do this, you can grow, you can evolve, we can achieve this. We have to reach the pinnacle of excellence. And so what you're saying hits home personally, the importance of stopping to celebrate the wins, enjoy it. I think you can just share when you feel a really deep sense of mission, it can be so hard to stop and pause and celebrate because the opportunity cost is more people whose lives aren't being improved right now. Yeah. And by the way, on that, take pictures along the way. So you always be shocked, like, oh my God, I didn't take a picture of the very first co-working space we were in when we were three people. Like, what did it even look like? You know, you want that and you want that history to look back on. I think I've seen the photo of you and the Ripple co-founders sitting in like a little fast casual restaurant at like a table together. Yeah. And so don't forget to take pictures along the way. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate the very, very important points on leadership. And we have two more topics to cover. I want to shift into climate. As I mentioned, you've been an enormously influential mentor in my life. You shared a lot of your passions with me and so many others. And I want to dig into climate, you know, one of your largest passions. If we think about the wider world, the state of the climate is a huge topic. After many years of energy companies, perhaps trying to push the idea of personal responsibility, right, of carbon footprint, many now agree that it's the grander instruments of power that make the biggest difference. Our financial system, our financial markets are where there is the highest leverage, the largest opportunity for driving a thoughtful, strategic, effective, but of course, urgent transition into clean energy. What financial incentives or what innovation do you think does there need to be for the financial industry to drive a move to a repaired and replenished planet running on clean energy? So first of all, climate, obviously, is super necessary. We're working on this. And you're right. There's a lot of performative BS. And I'm important to hear this being understood. A little bit of that is a strategy by the powers that be that just want to keep things going the way they are. So we have to be careful about that. Doesn't mean to be thoughtful, but it's an important point to bring up. Climate's a fun area to work on, actually. There's a ton going on right now. It's like a thousand front war. There's political stuff, there's economic stuff, finance stuff, technology stuff, biology stuff. It is really cool. So a fun area to get into. And I would just encourage everybody to, to think of it that way. It doesn't have to be doom and gloom. In fact, doom and gloom, we need to stop that. It's very counterproductive. And we will solve this. In fact, we are solving it. But I think in the finance area, really critical for finance people to get involved in this because the financing part of it is so critical. And it's the financing team members that will have an influence on leadership of organizations, nonprofits, for-profits to help them to get involved. 
but we need carbon markets to be working better. Obviously, there's a ton of stuff that is better. So solar and wind now is cheapest form of electricity. So that's great. Market forces are going to carry that, which is great. But it would be great to see kind of more focus on developing carbon markets so people can trade carbon. And by the way, there's just a huge opportunity here for more of the developing nations, the global south, that I think so far is a missed opportunity, right? And particularly when it comes to carbon dioxide removal, which is a big area that we work on, we're not going to get to a livable planet <laughs> in just on renewables, right? Which is replacing fossil fuels. That's step one. We got to do that for sure. But you still have to address the, was it 500 billion to a trillion tons of carbon dioxide that's sitting in the air? Basically, a, we didn't collect our garbage on the streets for a hundred years. It'd be a pretty unlivable planet. Basically, that's what we've been doing with the air. We've been dumping CO2 in the air and there's been no sort of garbage collection in the street to go pick it up and remove it and dispose of it. And that's kind of what the carbon dioxide removal industry is going to be. It's going to be a gigantic waste disposal industry. It's going to make a ton of money and that's good. And there's a ton of technologies coming down the pike, whether they be engineered solutions like direct air capture, or whether they be nature-based solutions like changing the way farmers in the U.S. and hopefully increasingly in Africa so they can be part of the money flow here, change the way that they work their soils, things like ocean alkalinity enhancement, how you're dealing with the oceans and the acidity in there that's going to make it absorb more CO2. So there's a bunch of techniques here, all of them in a race to see, can you gobble up CO2 at 100 bucks a ton? What we're going to need is really well-functioning carbon markets, and it would be great to see more finance focus on this carbon dioxide removal industry in the global south. So whether that means new innovative financing techniques to get some of the engineered solutions being located in African countries, for example, so they can start solving the problem, but also building wealth that's going to come their way through this activity, or whether that be, again, more kind of farm techniques where small farmers, let's say in throughout Africa, again, use that as an example, can start driving more capital in their farming because they're also farming CO2, right? Wouldn't that be a great thing, right? The beauty of CO2 industry is unlike oil and gas or even water, which some countries are very lucky and have tons of reserves and some countries don't, CO2 is everywhere. So everybody has a shot at participating in that market. So I think for a finance industry, focus on building these solutions and trying to get financing options to build capabilities in the global south. That's a win-win-win and a big opportunity. Other areas in climate that we focus on, by the way, are solving the left-right climate divide. We've got a huge problem there. We've got small groups on the extremes that are bathing in their own self-righteousness, and it's really setting back what could otherwise be an enormous industry, enormous wealth, American leadership. We got to stop that BS on both sides. It's not just the right denying or saying it's a hoax. It's also too much on the left that's self-righteous, doom and gloom, not respecting coal workers, oil workers who have spent the last hundred years keeping the lights on and moving America forward. Just stop doing that. And this, by the way, as you know, the belief we should retire the words that aren't working, right? Words are important and ESG is not working. So let's retire the damn thing and quit trying to be all high and mighty with the word. If the word isn't working, get rid of it and pick something else. I don't even care if you call it climate, call it energy transition, call it the new American frontier, whatever it takes. Call it protecting hunting grounds in 
the Southeast. I don't care. Whatever works to solve the problem, that's what we should be focused on. Chris, I want to double click there into this point that you made about words that aren't working. That if a word has gotten so charged and so controversial that it's just unnecessarily hindering progress, just call it something else. BlackRock's recently done that. BlackRock, just in the last few months, has rebranded some of their ESG funds. Would love to hear your thoughts on that. Do you just view that as a sound, smart business move and good on them? Good job. Yeah, because ESG has been ruined. It's an ineffective word. It's actually counterproductive. And look, take off the S and the G, keep the E or sustainability or whatever climate CO2. That's the important thing here in this fight. I speak for anybody, but I think on the right, part of the suspicion on climate change was this is a Trojan horse. You're going to come at me with climate and you're going to wrap a bunch of other things that I don't agree with into the climate fight. And gee, what a surprise. The S and G look exactly like that, right? So look, there's tons of social issues to fight for, depending on who you are. There's tons of governance issues to fight for. Why are we putting them all in the same basket? So we're talking about climate. Let's focus on that problem. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate you touching there. Last question on climate here, because we've been able to cover a lot of ground so quickly. At SOF, you've been making very generous contributions and you helped us launch Purposeful Finance, our initiative to help our students understand and access impact investing and sustainable investing opportunities. I want to ask, what advice do you give the next generation on how to save our planet using finance? To the 18, 19, 20-year-olds listening, to the analysts at Goldman or wherever listening, what do you tell the next generation that they need to know right now as they're preparing for a 30-year journey and making a difference? Yeah, I get back to, it's a really fun area to work in. So dive in. It's going to be fun. Forget the doom and gloom. The solutions are there. This one's going to be solved. And increasingly, I'm reading clear it's going to be solved. And then I think we're going to be on other problems like AI and, and how divided our world is. In some ways, those are part of the problems. So climate's going to be an enormous opportunity, might be the greatest wealth generator of all time. I mean, if you look at the rents that are derived from fossil fuels, like what is it, two to three trillion dollars a year. So there is just mammoth opportunity in this energy transition. So, you know, get involved, be active, get busy but have faith it's going to work out. But I think the other thing is specifically in finance, you know, finance is interesting because you're in these organizations, whatever they are, and you're likely dealing with people of all stripes. And personally, I believe the biggest issue to work on in today, probably the rest of my lifetime, is this division that's going on everywhere. You're seeing it across the globe and really bad right here in America. We're now the most divided democracy on the planet. We got to stop that. So. I think when it comes to climate as a finance expert, this is another opportunity to bridge the gap. There's lots of good work going on in bridging the gap, whether that be the American Conservation Coalition, the Evangelical Environmental Network, whether it be ClearPath. There's a lot of good organizations that are working on this problem of division in climate. And I would hope that the finance professionals, they're in a perfect spot to be central to that conversation. Talking to customers are also talking to probably a little bit more conservative investors. You got to bridge the gap there. You got to talk in a way that isn't pushing away either one of those constituents. Another very, very prescient reminder. I've often told friends and family that if for some reason scholars of finance failed, the next thing I would want to solve is the division in society. 
our ability to engage in dialectic, our ability to have real conversations. I like you think it's so incredibly important. People forget that like there was a civil war in America at one point. And people forget that like nations that were once peaceful, there have been hundreds of civil strifes and civil wars across the globe over the years, over thousands of years. Once united peoples getting divided and not being able to actually navigate it. And so I just want to say how much I appreciate you raising the importance of that. When we talk about division, we are not talking about a world where we're going to be kumbaya here in America, right? We have never been that. There's a great book called, what is it? The 11 Nations of America. I don't know if you ever read that one. I think I got that title right, but a phenomenal book. It reminds us that we are a nation that's been stitched together by people that have been opposed to each other forever. But here's the difference. Obviously, there have been opposing parties that wanted their way or this way, but it was always kind of with the background of doing what's best for the country. I just believe my view is better for the country than your view, right? That's fine. And we're always going to have that. But what we've seen lately, though, is that I'm going to work on my viewpoint, even if it hurts the country, just to hurt you. I'm going to clobber you, and I don't care if it hurts our country. And that's the new thing. And what does that do? That weakens the country. We got to stop that. So again, this is the same for San Francisco. I know we're going to talk about San Francisco. We got a course correct there too. We're never going to get back to a unified city. It's one of the most divided cities you can imagine. But as long as everybody's divided in a way that loves the city and wants to see the city thrive, fine. It's when I want my view, even if it blows up the world or the city or your state, not fine. And that's what we got to work against. That's a perfect segue into San Francisco, I think. Can you unpack at a high level kind of the state of San Francisco as you see it? Share some of the initiatives that you're working on that you think are most important. Tell us about the big campaign that was just launched and had some news coverage. Give us the debrief on SF. Yeah, so I guess, first of all, I think the national narrative on San Francisco has been way overblown, and some of that's for political reasons. That's what happens when you let the lefties have their way. Don't do that, right? So a lot of it's overblown. we got to fight that. Then the campaign you're talking about is a campaign that we started with Bob Fisher of the Gap fame. The campaign is it all starts here. And that was a narrative campaign. And really importantly, the city's got a lot of problems. We got to work on those problems. We are, but we can't let the narrative get away from us. So that's what the campaign was about. It was about a $4 million campaign. I think it's been very successful, especially leading into APEC, which we finished in November, which was very successful for the city. So we're really pleased with that. But turning to the problems of the city, I think there's a couple of things going on here. I think very liberal city, obviously. And we had an overreaction to incidents like the murder of George Floyd, tragic as that was. We overcorrected in starving the police and public safety organizations from their tools and effectiveness. And that happened at exactly the wrong time when there's a cop shortage throughout the country. And that's because 30 years ago, roughly, uh, the Clinton administration put 100,000 cops on the street to handle a different crime issue. And no surprise, those cops are now retiring, right? It's been 30 years. So the whole country was facing a cop shortage, even if nothing else had happened. And then you have in these liberal cities, you see this in Seattle and Portland, LA too, way overcorrected. Some of it absolutely out of compassion and anger and sadness, some of it performative. And again, pendulum swung too far. And so that contributed to a public safety problem. In San Francisco, you also had 
too much of the industry here that's very new technology and for whatever reason, just never got really involved in City Hall. So it's kind of shocking to me as I start getting into what's going on in the city, how little dialogue there was between City Hall and the business community, especially the newer ones, and how little like some of these companies which have so much money just didn't get involved. It's almost like it's a beautiful place. We're making a ton of money. Everybody's happy. I just don't want to get involved in that City Hall stuff. That looks like a mess. So what happened there was, I think, the far progressive side saw that engineered basically a takeover of the key institutions in the city in a very smart way, while the rest of us were kind of not paying attention. And that's been a problem. And a big part of that problem is just a overly bureaucratic city where sometimes it's not even clear who's responsible for anything. The mayor has just so little power over key things she should have power over, like public safety, keeping the streets clean, for example. So just way over bureaucratic. So those are the things that we're trying to undo now. How do we increase public safety, more police morale, more police on the street, better tools? There'll be a ballot initiative that we're supporting here in March on giving cops access to drones, more access to camera networks, more access to other important technology tools, AI, for example, being able to chase suspects when they've committed a crime. They can't do that today. Crazy. And generally taking some power away from the police commission, which has really overstepped their bounds in a performative way. So that's one. Then the other, I think longer term is how do you undo some of the bureaucracy? We have something like 130 commissions and advisory groups. And it's just insane. So we've got to undo some of that. And then some of our small businesses have struggled, so they need help. There's a group, a thing we've created called Avenue Greenlight. We put about four million bucks into that to give small grants to small businesses. It's about a hundred thousand workers in San Francisco that are working at small businesses. So it's the lifeblood of the city. And that's been going really well. So we're happy with that. So yeah, those are the main things we're working on. And that's actually a lot of fun too. It's a very small city, so a little bit of resources goes actually a long way. Thanks, Chris. I want to ask a quick follow-up. There's a sort of narrative that's taken over. A handful of folks moved to Miami, Austin, New York, seen some exits. San Francisco saw some exits during COVID. You have lived in San Francisco you know, your whole life. A lot of people locally. Is that narrative accurate? Is that overblown? Like how much of a quote exodus is there actually from the state of California? Yeah, it's way overblown. So if you look at San Francisco, look what's happened in AI. And AI now is one of the most transformative technologies ever. And if you look at all the citations on AI, the big four, Meta, OpenAI, Google, and Stanford, all right here. OpenAI just opened a huge office complex here in the city. That's just another booming technology in a small city like this, leading the world. It's awesome. So yeah, that narrative is BS. You look at all the other VC investments, the Bay Area, San Francisco, they dominate places like Miami, Austin, many, many multiples. Tourism has come back in a huge way. I was downtown yesterday. There's a, a JP Morgan conference in town. It looked great. City looked clean. It was really great. So it's way overblown. And it's self-interest that's overblowing that, right? Miami's a competitor. Austin's a competitor. So I get it. They want to take us down. Good luck with that. I think I know where I'd want to be. I want to be here. I'm glad you are, Chris. Now that my wife is going to be a doctor locally, and I'm here for the next 20 years at least, I'm glad you're just a few minutes away. 
And I think to any of our listeners who are very focused on finance, obviously, I think a good reminder of the importance of public finance and public finance roles, the importance of local banking, small business banking, merchant banking, consumer banking. I think for a lot of our students listening, there's lots of conversations about the investment banks and private equity, but there's a lot of roles in finance where you can be mobilizing capital on the ground, helping real people solve real problems in the real world right now. And so, Chris, with that, maybe one last question, layup we always give our guests. You've been incredibly supportive of Scholars of Finance and our mission. You've been a catalytic donor, a sustaining donor of ours. You've shaped our programs, helped us launch our climate initiative. You've mentored me as a CEO for several years now, even coming to the wedding, right? And supporting me there. What stood out to you about our mission and Scholars of Finance and why would you encourage others to support the work? What a fundamental thing that uh, finance professionals are doing in every single organization. You're kind of the heart, the beating heart, right? All organizations, they operate on finance. And so you want that beating heart to be healthy and strong. And that comes to ethics and knowledge, vision, and not being afraid to call out things that might be difficult. And you need that culture in finance organizations. As we've seen, we've seen the bad actors. So when I look at you guys, I think like this is training like the future generation of finance professionals to be the leaders that we need and we want and make this country healthier, make this world healthier. So it's so fundamental. So I really appreciate what you guys are doing. Thanks, Chris. A lot of our students want to go into crypto one day, so you might have just inspired some future innovators. Okay, very good. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate you coming on and excited for our third episode in the future. Oh, thank you so much, Ross. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.